Welcome to the Pathfinder Podcast from Lancer Capital, where we interview subject matter experts to help us in the small business community navigate some of the most difficult business challenges. Welcome to episode three of the Pathfinder Podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about the exit process, and I know that's a you know an interesting topic for a lot of folks that are maybe thinking about selling their business. Uh, especially if it's a family business or a business that you founded and run for a long period of time, it can be, you know, a process filled with anxiety, stress, and a lot of emotions. And it's a really important decision that, you know, any business owner goes through and figuring out, you know, one, is it the right time to sell Two, what does the process look like? And three, ultimately, what are the dynamics around certain buyers and how do I get comfortable with them? So, we have Matt Bradbury from Business Acquisition and Merger Associates with us today, as well as Mark Borda from Citrin Cooperman's Transaction Advisory Services Group. And we're looking forward to getting their insights on running a transaction process or being involved in a due diligence process and you know how a business owner can prepare uh mentally prepare the business uh, be ready for you know the challenges of that process how to identify potentially the right buyer and things to be thinking about in that uh in that time so hopefully this is a valuable episode and has a lot of insights and we look forward to the conversation today Good afternoon, everybody. We're here with Mark Borda from Citrin Cooperman and Matt Bradbury from Business Acquisitions and Mergers Associates. Uh, really excited to have both of these guys on board. Uh, we, we've worked with them in the past and uh, excited to have them share their insights uh, on preparing for an exit, what it's like to go through a sale process, due diligence, and, and all of the above. So Matt and Mark, uh, thank you guys for joining us. We wanted to maybe start off with hearing backgrounds, just a quick, you know, bio and background on each of you. So I'll start with Matt and maybe say a few words to introduce yourself. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Matt Bradbury, I founded uh, a small boutique M&A firm called Business Acquisition and Merger Associates about 15 years ago. Uh, over the last 15 years, we've closed on 150 transactions with about a billion dollars of enterprise value. And most of our clients are founder, family, uh, business owners that this is their baby. And uh, it's a really important decision to them. And I think uh, one of the things that we have done in, in building our practice is really focus on the things in addition to the money. So the culture, the people, the what does this look like uh, two years, three years, five years after afterwards. Um, typically do a hundred-ish million in transactions a year today and anywhere from eight to twelve million dollar trans eight to twelve uh, transactions annually. Great. Thanks for that, Matt. And Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, so I'm a director in the MA Advisory Services Group at Citroen Cooperman. Um, Citrin's a uh, top 25 national full-service accounting firm. I'm based in the Philadelphia office, um, and I'd say roughly half of my time is advising our financial and strategic buyer clients through the entire transaction continuum. 
So everything from you know helping with preliminary diligence to post integration work and everything in between. I'd say the other half is uh, advising our our clients through the process of selling their businesses. So um, you know, thanks for inviting me to the call, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank thank you guys both for joining us. So I want to start with a little bit of a you know conversation around approaching an exit and. Um, Matt, you, you talk to a lot of business owners, as you mentioned, family, founder, uh, you know, own businesses that are thinking about, you know, selling the company. It is their baby. Uh, it's a major decision in their life. And, you know, quite honestly, typically represents a huge portion of their net worth. And so it's, it's a difficult and challenging decision. And so I wanted to maybe have you take some time and if, if somebody is 12 to 24 months out of thinking about that transaction, what do you typically hear from sellers as their biggest concerns? What are they really focused on and what are the major considerations they're thinking about or should be thinking about in that decision? Uh, absolutely, Josh. So I think it, I, I guarantee that if they're 12 to 18 months out, they probably get hammered every week or every month by uh, investment bankers like us or competitors or strategic buyers that express an interest. And all of a sudden, 12 to 18 months out, they start to get more lively about wanting to have a conversation and figure out how the process works. There's a lot of anxiety around uh, strategic buyers unless there's a personal relationship there that they they know these guys from industry conferences and things if it's somebody they they don't know there's going to be a lot of reservation on whether they should begin having a conversation like that i think the other thing that happens is anxiety goes up around people i i cannot understate the vast majority i'm going to say vast majority 85 to 90 percent of business owners so much care about their employees and they're humble and they recognize that their success wasn't completely because of them. They recognize that their success is because they've got good people that have dedicated their lives to doing what they do. And this really starts to weigh on their mind to make sure that it is going to be the right uh, transaction. You know, they'll be talking to their golfing buddy and you're going to hear all kinds of stories about transactions that either went well or uh, more often than not, really went sideways. So those would be some of the things that we see them starting to ponder. And we start to talk to them about, you know, what are the things that are going to be really important to you in a transaction aside from the value of your company? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. And that, that is something we hear so often. Um, you know, our approach when we're making investments and in, in working with companies and talking to business owners is very much for being management friendly, employee friendly, and almost without exception, it is probably the biggest concern aside from the dollars and cents. That's always obviously an important aspect in the transaction yep. structure, but understanding what's happening with management, how you're going to treat their employees, what are your plans for their employees, your willingness to kind of incentivize them and give them reins of the company. Um, and I think it's also interesting because so many of these owners trust their employees to continue their legacy and the unknown variable is us as a buyer and so they don't want to see the business fall apart after they sell 
And there's a trust factor that if their team and their people are still involved in running the company and are being treated well, they can feel much better about that. But it is a huge consideration that that absolutely I would agree is is probably front of mind for, for everyone. So I appreciate that insight. And when you you know get these concerns, how do you kind of educate them and, and what do you do to understand exactly what they're looking for from an ideal buyer standpoint to, to fit those cultural aspects? Well, first we talk about the kinds of buyers that are out there and really start to ease their concern that they are in the driver's seat and they can pick the transaction that they want. We can help them get exactly what they want. I think we also educate them on the breadth of private equity groups out there. Uh, believe it or not, 15 to 20% of private equity groups are golden. They're exceptional. They've got a lot of humility, great bedside manner and experience. Another 15 to 20% won't hurt you, but 60 to 65%, you hope they're not your partner. I mean, they can't get it their own way. And, and we help to validate the fact that they've heard about transactions that go uh, wonky or sideways with a friend of theirs from their club, it's it's highly probable because the vast majority of private equity groups uh, aren't really seller friendly and they don't have the same people skills that are going to be required to help this particular business owner get the kind of transaction that they want. So we will spend some time there just helping them understand that. We'll also look at what is their personal goal. Are you looking to really transition out over the next six months, 12 months, two years, five years? Are you 59? Are you 72 years old? And what is your what is your proclivity for being able to uh, stick around for a while? Because that'll dictate whether we're looking for, say, a, a growth recap where they can get a, a second bite of the apple, so to speak, or really benefit from the value that a good private equity partner can bring to them? Or do they need to sell to a strategic buyer or do they want to sell to their management team and just let them know, wow, let's all exhale here. You have a lot of options and we can really find the right cultural fit, the right personal fit to make sure that your people, your customers and your employees are going to be well taken care of going forward. Yeah, it's a great point. And I, and I want to ask both of you guys, Matt and Mark, you know, maybe your thoughts on this, but I'll, I'll start with Matt. We see in many scenarios where sellers, again, dollars are important, but sellers will actually not take the highest offer. Now, they're generally not taking something that's 20, 40 percent off of the highest offer. But we see many scenarios where they actually make the decision not to take the highest offer. And so in the transactions that you represent, how common an occurrence is that where you know, fit becomes that really important factor. It's not just dollars. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in on this first. We see it all the time. Um, obviously, we will run a process and we'll typically narrow that down to the top five or six candidates that qualify for experience. They qualify for being in the right valuation range and they'll go through management presentations and spend some time with the business owner on just cultural fit and chemistry. And I guarantee if there's five or six prospective buyers, our client really likes one or two over the others. They really 
fit. It was the right uh, value system, the right the right fit. And almost always the one that they like the best, if there's five offers, is number three <laughs> on price. Uh, and they are in the ballpark. And, and typically our method is, hey, we do know where all the market is. Let's go back to the guy that you really want to partner with and do it. And let's let's counter his offer and see if he would uh, move forward with you or accept it as it is. I've had people do it both ways. I had one guy said, that's the one I want. I pick him. That was his offer. I respect it. You know, he's the, cho they literally said he's the chosen one. And it was uh, a little bit less than the, the top offer. So it does happen all the time. And I would just, for the sake of this, this call, I want to encourage if a business owner hears this, really pick chemistry over dollars first. Really, really, really. It, it, it uh, will create a much better legacy for you, a much better outcome over time. You're going to get really good check the box money that it's going to work. But chemistry is what's going to really matter when your employees say, well, they were the perfect buyer. I'm so glad that you chose those guys to be the next steward of your legacy and of your company. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, a lot of times for our, for our clients that we're advising through this, the uh, sales process, um, you know, post-closing operations is, is a key element to really think about, you know, so once there's, you know, a new, new ownership or, you know, a new partner, there's, there's inherently going to be changes at the company, right? So, um, you know, there may be changes in priorities or, or budgets, you know, and, and, or, or, and among many others. So, um, so we definitely, and a key part of that is the culture as well. You want to maintain that. You want to maintain the continuity, continuity of that. So we definitely talk to our clients a lot about that, you know, in the case where, um, you know, there's a buyer that's already been identified. We just want to make, we, we just want to confirm that. And if there's a number of buyers that are potentially involved, then, um, you know, as Matt was saying, we'd like to um, really uh, point our clients towards that. And one way to really get comfortable is really in the process, um, you know, j just just um, advising our, 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 our business owner clients to really develop strong relationships with the potential buyer, uh, particularly during the preliminary uh, diligence discussions. Um, and I think that that helps them. That goes a long way to get a feel for what the post-close operations will be like. And, and, and it's instrumental in identifying the, the, the right buyer in addition to all of the economical elements. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And certainly going through a transaction process, and, and we say this to every company that, that we're talking to, potentially signing an LOI uh, with, is building that relationship during that dating phase, so to speak, when you know we're trying to move towards a transaction closing is, is really important. If you don't like me then, you're not going to like me after we get married. And it's, it's really imperative to get comfortable with that group. And we also try to spend some time talking to people early on saying, look, this process is going to be painful. It is going to feel like, quote unquote, somebody's calling your baby ugly. Nobody likes that. But that's not our intention. And our intention is to just get comfortable and understand the business. But at the end of the day, as we go through the legal process and the legal documents, when we get to the closing table, we're going to have spent a lot of money in trying to get all the transaction documents signed. But if we have to open them after closing, something's gone wrong. 
because it's really about that business partnership and that business relationship. And almost always there's ways to work through those challenges if you have that right partner and the person that can can really be supportive of, you know, moving your business forward. So I think a lot of what you guys resonates, what a lot of what you guys said resonates with the people we talk to and the people we encounter when, you know, we're looking at transactions. Um, the next thing I wanted to kind of, you know, dive into, and we covered it a little bit, but it was around the type of buyer. And, you know, I'll kind of put it in two buckets, either financial buyer or strategic buyer. Now within financial, you know, obviously there's various types of private equity funds, there's family offices, there's independent sponsors, all that come with maybe a little bit different of a, a tweak or approach to how they're approaching. But Matt, I want to kind of key in on the private equity buyer versus the strategic. And you mentioned something earlier that the vast majority of sellers you talk to are very concerned about strategic buyers learning about their business. With that said, if their motive is to get out of the company quickly in that sort of three to six month transition time, it's much easier for a strategic to accomplish that. So when we're looking at transactions, sometimes we see, you know, bankers take a company to market, get an indication of market, have some conversations and then say, okay, we're going to go to the strategics. We're going to give them a very short time frame to kind of match and get there on the deal or else they're out. There's ways they can kind of control the process. So I'm curious how you typically approach that, you know, conversation around strategic versus financial buyer and how you maybe get them involved in the deal. Yeah, we do recommend that they run a parallel process that'll include strategic buyers and financial buyers. And we typically have the strategic portion of that a little bit later than the start point on the financial buyers. We let the financial buyers get up to speed uh, faster, but then bring the strategics along. And I will say, I can have five different strategic buyers. Every one of those has its own culture and personality. And some are completely uh, collaborative and other guys, it's my way or the highway and they will fit or not fit our clients uh, desires. So I'm still going to say, even if it's a strategic buyer, it's going to come down to what is the culture and the personality of that strategic, our client, this is their child. This is their, a member of their family. And they really want to make sure that, six months, 12 months, two years, five years down the road, whoever they sell to, they know that it was a good decision and it's the right decision. And it's not just the money. These guys are going to be able to add some value to their business or create more growth opportunities for their employees or expand the, the level of services or products that they get to carry going forward. So those are all characteristics that are part of the decision. We dig into all of these and more items to really help them make the best decision for them. Yeah, it makes sense. And Mark, I'm, I'm curious from your side, especially more on the due diligence front, you know, as you're advising clients or helping them go through, or even on behalf of a buyer, uh, how do you maybe compare and contrast the ways a, a private equity or financial buyer may approach due diligence versus a strategic buyer? and sort of where they, you know, strategics might be more streamlined, they might be more focused on certain things, but maybe give us an idea of how that may differ depending on who the buyer is. Yeah, so <clears throat> so really it depends on the, the specific circumstances of the, of the seller, but, you know, from a, from a financial due diligence mechanics perspective, um, you know, the, the diligence procedures 
are generally pretty similar. I mean, we may, you know, tailor, we, we find ourselves tailoring our, our scope or, uh, you know, layering in certain um, corporate type synergies for a strategic buyer that we really wouldn't for a financial buyer. So there's particular elements of like the, of that as it would relate to, to a Q of E. Um, you know, I think strategic buyers usually have a more uh, specific approach because, you know, they're in the business. They know exactly what they're looking for. They've been through a number of those. Um, you know, they know what back office type areas to target as a, as a, a cost-based synergy. Um, and there's also, you know, there's the, also that the element of risk that was, that was touched on with the strategic that you don't exactly have to worry about with the financial where, you know, you have a strategic, maybe a competitor or somewhere, somewhat of a competitor that is, you know, poking through your business. And if the, the deal ultimately falls through, you know, you may have put your, your business in risk. So we always advise through the process to be careful not to reveal too much information prior to the deal close, you know, such as um, uh, product costs or, or any sort of expansion plans. And, you know, it's still a real risk, even with, you know, strong NDAs. Um, you know, other than that, I think we, you know, we, we touched on the, the, the post-closing operations are, are important as it relates to the culture and the personality. Um, you know, I think uh, um, there, there's, you know, we, we, we advise our, our clients on, on, you know, management continuity. It all depends on the circumstance of the seller. Does the seller want to stick, stick around? If so, um, you know, then you, then, then uh, you may be uh, focusing more on a financial buyer element as opposed to if you're looking to just sell and exit from the business. Um, you, you know, you may be more palatable to a strategic buyer. So those are a couple of considerations, um, you know, that, that we have our, our, uh, our selling clients think about. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, we, we started talking a little bit about the due diligence process. And, you know, at a high level, I'm curious to get both of you guys insights. I'll start with Matt. Um, Want to maybe share with us give us the two, three, four things maybe that are the most likely to derail a deal from a, from a, you know, due diligence process. We all in the business have been in transactions where we're starting due diligence, the buyer's looking at the numbers, the buyer's looking at other things in the business and something comes up that, you know, sends the deal sideways. And what we want to kind of understand is, well, is there a way to prepare, in advance to try to reduce the risk of those things happening. So for Matt, what are those key areas that you would say are the most likely to cause issues in a uh, due diligence process? Uh, for us, the biggest one is gonna be customer concentration that is really at risk. If you've got a 30% customer, and their contract is up for renewal in six months, um, there's gonna be pause on the part of the buyer until that gets resolved and it's more certain and more clear, despite the fact that that customer may have been a customer for 12 years. I will just tell you, we've seen it. We've had guys that were customers for 12 years and it was up for renewal and it didn't get renewed. And for no, for no fault or no reason, of our client, they didn't do anything wrong, but at the end of the day, that that customer chose to go in a different direction. So that's one. I would say on the uh, the tightness and cleanliness of their financial statements, that they do fairly represent the actual performance of the business. Um, I mean, we try not to take on a client if we have 
a sniff or a, a belief that it's not what it is out to be. So I would just say in uh, the quality of earnings to make sure that, that everything is legit and uh, in there. With regards to um, what are some things that come up, it would be accruals. A lot of times in companies that are, say, 10 to $20 million of revenue, they may not be accruing to gap. And some of the most common ones that, that uh, a business owner is frustrated with would be accrual for uh, bad debt, writing off inventory where they, uh, they haven't been writing off inventory and you get in there and they've got uh, a huge slug of stuff that's been sitting on the shelf for three years and it's not sellable anymore. Those would be some of the big dingers that we would see in a Q of E report. Got it. Yep. And I, and it, you know, especially around the, the customer concentration, you made a really interesting point. And we see that a lot of businesses, especially when they're, they're contract based and there are large customers and those contracts need to be renewed in order for the revenue to be considered occurring. Um, the best advice, you know, I could give uh, to business owners thinking about a sale is to if you're thinking and planning ahead for whenever that that time period is and if you have a customer under a multi-year contract trying to think about the time of potentially selling your business in conjunction with when that contract may renew to give a buyer the most runway under a new contract will get you more value in a sale process than than the opposite right and so I, to the extent that it's possible, anyone that can kind of prepare for that and have the visibility and say, okay, I'm going to make sure that when I go to sell this, sell this company, that my customer contracts are locked in, that there's runway and visibility into the revenue for the foreseeable future to kind of take that concern out because it is a big concern. And, and like you said, there are scenarios where somebody could have been a lifelong customer and for whatever reason, you know, they left. And a buyer will also always be concerned if the customer relationship potentially exists with the seller and the seller is no longer involved in the business, how easily is that relationship transitioned? So the more runway you can give to lock that in, that's going to make a buyer feel a lot better in the process. So thanks for those insights. I think they're all very good. Mark, maybe from your side at a high level, share some of the, you know, couple things and maybe they map over with Matt's, uh, but share some of the things to look out for. Yeah, I think, I think that the customer concentration is obviously huge. I mean, we look at that as part of our standard procedure. So those are falling out in our analysis is, is uh, our analysis as well. I'd say in addition to that, and I think Matt um, was touching on this, is just, you know, quality of information issues, you know, so, um, you know, data that's not tying into each other, like, you know, maybe some healthcare EMR data that's not reconciling to the, the accounting um, ledger, um, you know, um, financial accounting uh, cutoff issues, or if they've changed their accounting policies and procedures a number of times during the period that you're looking at, you know, things that, um, we um, that we take a buyer's lens at for our, our clients that are that we're help advising through the sale that it's going to be important to a buyer they're going to dig into and they're going to focus on. So we try to get ahead of that and help our clients um, uh, clean it up in time if we're in early enough, or at least you know uh, develop some supportable, honest, and uh, you know reasonable narrative around it. I'd say other than that, you know, communication issues I think is really impo important. Um, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of different in, 
parties involved in the transaction continuum. You know, you have attorneys, bankers, accountants, deal teams, other consultants. You know, too often each party builds like like a silo around its you know individual procedures and concerns and its own world that they don't see the bigger picture. So in cases like that, you know, where there's uh, it's a it's a larger deal or there's a you know, particular level of uh, high sophistication and there's a bunch of parties involved, you know, it's always good to have periodic calls and touch points to make sure that all sides and service lines are progressing and any bottlenecks are are identified and addressed. Um, and then also just just even on, you know, this this goes for the buyer and, this, and the seller, you know, really, um, and this may be in the middle and lower middle market type deals, but really don't, don't not to take on too much on your own just to, to save on costs. Um, you know, I've had that. I've seen that be major um, effects on the progression in a deal. You know, I've been part of a recent deal where you know my client said, "Hey, we'll handle the networking capital analysis, and Mark, you handle the the QV analysis." Well, about halfway through um, the the due diligence process, they called and said, "Oh, there's this unforeseen complexity. We don't really know how to proceed. Um, can you take over the networking capital as well?" Which you know we ultimately handled, but you know, it just created some inefficiencies in the process. So I think that that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah, they're all great points. And I want to key in a little bit, uh, you know, a couple of things Matt said and Mark specifically on the financial side. Um, there's always things that can, you know, kind of derail a deal, but we find that the, the biggest concern and where most people are worried early on in a process is getting through that quality of earnings or whatever you want to call it, some financial accounting due diligence process, because ultimately a buyer is buying a stream of cash flow and you got to make sure that that cash flow is real and that it's there and that it is what you think it is. And um, you know, many times in, in smaller businesses, the gap procedures aren't tight and buyers know that everybody kind of understands that. Um, but one of the areas that we see is around gap adjustments, but it's also around EBITDA adjustments. And as most sellers and bankers will present, there are adjustments to EBITDA, be it, you know, one-time costs, uh, non-recurring excess compensation, those type of things. The the documentation around them, any buyer is going to be skeptical. So, you know, it's, it's important to have those things kind of tight and I'll, I'll stop and kind of ask Mark to share maybe some insights as he's diligencing those items, what he typically sees and, and where you may struggle as you're going through that analysis to try to validate some of those points. Yeah. So we, we look at, um, at the, the the selling business at it on a trial balance level so we we literally go through all the trial balance accounts and discuss with management uh what's running through those accounts and the consistency of those accounts and really on a cost on the cost side we're we're looking to identify um uh you know everything you were saying josh yeah, so one time um non-recurring non-operational costs in nature um whereby we'll exclude from um historical P&L in, in, in the construction of our adjusted EBITDA. Um, so that usually falls out just by, uh, you know, viewing or analyzing the, a, a trended monthly P&L um, and discussions with management. Um, on the revenue side, you know, we're, we're taking a deep dive into, you know, revenue, the, the, the most detailed level that they can find in order to, 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 to flush out any revenue type adjustments. Um, you know, if there's a, if they've added a customer, if they've added a geographic re region, if they lost a customer, um, there's a change in pricing. 
you know, things of that nature. So really the, the, the main challenge is just, uh, you know, the, the quality of information. And that's usually a function of the sophistication of the, the, the selling company's um, finance and accounting function. So if it's, if it's um, you know, a, a, a um, sophisticated seller, um, you know, they have a CFO and a controller that's been there for a while and, and their policies and procedures, whether they're gap or not, are tight and consistent. You know that our, our process is usually much more streamlined, and we're much more successful in in being able to identify adjustments and document them so that they're fully supportable. In cases where um, you know there's uh, the the um, the finance teams not as sophisticated, and you know the the finance and accounting um, you know statements are um, you know are just not as tight. You know, that definitely creates a, another level of complexity for us um, in, in identifying these adjustments and presenting them and discussing them in a way that's supportable to a buyer. Sure. You know, along those lines, one thing we do in every company we're involved in is kind of two main procedures. One, we create a separate line on our profit and loss statement called EBITDA add back expense. And any items we believe to be one time in nature or justifiable addbacks, we just go ahead and record to that expense item throughout the year, throughout any year that we're operating the business. Because what typically happens is later in the game, you're thinking about selling, you're forgetting what happened maybe two years ago, but your financials are going to be analyzed two years back. And if there were true one-time expenses, let's say there was a signing bonus for an employee or, you know, whatever it may be, if you code that item to that add back line item and attach the documentation to it, there's no guesswork in going back and doing the analysis. You now have a full P&L line that shows your EBITDA add backs with all of the detail behind it. So it makes life much easier to kind of defend those adjustments when the time comes and you're considering a sale. The second time, second thing we do is we have every uh, capital expenditure item involved in any of our businesses coded several different ways. One is one time. The other way is maintenance or the other is growth capex. So in businesses where you're spending significant capital expenditures, that's always going to be a concern for buyers in looking at, you know, is this maintenance? Is this what I need to spend to maintain my equipment? Or is this truly a one-time or growth-related investment? So if you can document your justification the minute that you uh, purchase an item and have your rationale for it, to the extent that you can have some code in your fixed asset register or in your financials that back that up, it becomes a lot easier going backwards to give a breakout uh, to the accounting firm or to the, the potential buyer of here's the buckets of where we're spending money and how it's justified. So to the extent that anyone's listening to this and thinking about how to prepare for those, those are two things I would definitely recommend you do because it'll allow your numbers to be in, in a better spot. Um, yeah, Josh, I, I would just add to that as well. One other thing uh, from a seller's perspective, just to, to be careful with all the, the personal type expenses that you're running through the business. Um, if they're if they're clear and maybe they have their own trial balance account where it's very easy to exclude those from a quality of earnings perspective, that's one thing. But to um, to run you know your your life's the expenses through your company's P and L and having this adjustment hit this account and that adjustment hit that account and then compiling them at the end of the day when you're trying to present it to a buyer. Um, it's going to be much, much harder 
for um, for a buyer to uh, to to, to pass. It's, it's going to be a much harder um, to pass muster with a buyer. So the personal expenses for a seller that that's another area that I would uh, I'd be careful with. Now that's a, that's a great point, Mark. And Matt, I wanted to kind of just get your perspective, being on the sell side as a banker in many cases, and I know you do buy side as work work as well, but I want to specifically kind of talk about the sell side. One thing we've seen is a trend towards doing sell side quality of earnings analysis. And I'm curious if that's something you typically recommend. And if so, you know, what are the advantages of doing that ahead of an actual uh, transaction process? You know what? I I do agree that some folks uh, have done that, and I think it is starting to become uh, more favorable. I was on a call right before this one, actually, with prospective buyers regarding our client, and they asked if we had done any buy side uh, Q of E, which in this particular case, we have not. But uh, I do see that the value is to have everybody's eyes open up front and there's less of a chance of a surprise. I think the biggest challenge with a Q of E uh, process is when it comes back, there is a surprise that uh, somebody didn't see coming, and then it creates some funkiness in the in the nature of the relationship as you're trying to develop relationship. And now you've got folks that are trying to you know continue on with a process where there could be a pretty big delta there of uh, financial performance that's not in sync. So uh, my feedback is, do I think they're 100% necessary every time? I don't, a lot depends on the quality of the financial statements that are done. Are they reviewed? Are they audited right now? Uh, in my, my two cents, if I'm representing a seller, if they have reviewed or audited financial statements, I'm probably not gonna suggest that they also need to do a Q of E. We will dig into areas that may impact a Q of E and talk about them and identify where potential issues are or recognize where a Q of E firm might identify some discrepancies from, from where they are. That makes sense. And Mark, I'm curious what your perspectives are. I'm sure you've, uh, you, you've maybe even done some, some sell side Q of E. Uh, so curious what kind of trends you see and maybe what the advantages or disadvantages of it are. Yeah, we, we've seen, uh, we've seen a meaningful pickup in sell side due diligence engagements over the last 12 months, even, um, you know, uh, quite often I'm having even, um, you know, bankers and, you know, MA attorneys reach out to me and try to get me to convince their clients to uh, engage uh, for a, a sell side QV. It just creates a lot of value. Um, you know, primarily for the seller, but also for a potential buyer as well. You know, so buyers viewing them as as uh, a, a beneficial because you know it gives them a deep understanding of the target business in advance of its own due diligence process. And it you know it it, it certainly stre streamlines the due diligence process for them and gives them uh, you know a level of comfort that another third party accounting firms analyze the business. Um, you know, for sellers. It, it provides you know further credibility into their uh, their their financials their, their um, you know cash flow generation capability and their business operations uh, you know in the in the eyes of a buyer you know and, and it also I think increases the likelihood of ultimately reaching a deal because um, you know as Matt was saying you know potential red flags or surprises are identified prior to the buyer's due diligence uh, period 
Um, you know, I think it, it helps the seller establish a, a, a strong, um, you know, t business proposition with, with EBITDA that's defensible. Um, and then, and, you know, the last thing I think it just, it allows the selling management team to, um, to focus on the ongoing operations of the business as much as possible during the transaction process, because a lot of the items the buyer is looking for um, comes up in conjunction with the sell side QV engagement. Yeah, and, and it's an interesting point, and I I would agree with Matt. You know, in the event that the financials are tight, you know, really quality, you know, kind of accounting function in the business and an audit, uh, and the financials are audited, maybe may less of an importance. But the one thing that I think buyers should consider is the reduction in anxiety uh, in the process. And you know, there's always going to be that feeling of you just don't know how the diligence is going to come out. And if you are kind of ahead of that with your own third party diligence there's a bigger level of control and more visibility to, to feel comfortable that when the time comes, the numbers are going to hold up. And so um, there, there's some benefit on that side. The, I want to jump to an, one more topic here before we wrap up. And this has been a great conversation, but I do want to talk a little bit about management and management is such a critical part. And we talked about employees and employees being taken care of. And, you know, one of the first things that a seller is, always concerned about is at what point in time do you bring management into the process and let them know what's going on? You know, we've seen cases where they don't want to tell anyone they're selling the business till the day before closing. And then we've seen other folks that, you know, they let everyone know the minute the process started because they want that transparency and there is no right or wrong way. But, you know, Matt, maybe share some insights as you work with, you know, your clients, when do you advise them to bring management in? How do you advise them in terms of getting others involved in the process and maybe the benefits of it? Uh, I advise our clients to keep it as lean on a need to know basis as much as possible at the beginning. Typically it's going to be the, the owner CEO and their CFO. And um, as we get to management presentations, uh, when we're really far down the process, we've gotten indications of interest. We've been qualifying prospective buyers, and now it's the time to uh, really make a decision. I think that other key members of the management team should participate in management presentations, and that's when I would bring it up. Uh, I think there's way more risk of being so transparent on this up front because uh, especially if for guys that go tell all of their employees, this is what I'm doing. I think it does create uh, more anxiety and uh, more potential that it could be a competitor that kind of takes that information and runs with it in a manner that could be detrimental to the business. So we like to keep it as, uh, as locked down as much as possible for as long as possible. But I do know for the buyer, <laughs> just notice a big part of the value of that business is the management team. And if you've got a rock solid rock star management team, there'll be a time prior to getting your final offer that you want that management team to be, you know, showed off to these prospective buyers and they can really put uh, put value on it. Yeah, it's a great point. And that is such a critical factor. And it's it's always the balance in these situations is, you know, if the management team is a you know high quality superstar team and they're a part of the future of the business going forward, 
the buyer has to get comfortable with that, but it's, it's trying to find that delicate balance of at what point in time are you far enough along in the process to have relative certainty that a deal is going to get done and you kind of know who you're dealing with. And I think management meetings are a, are a great time for that. And, and even still, we've seen, you know, situations where even the management meetings are limited and broader employee interaction or broader team interaction sometimes happens, you know, after the quality of earnings analysis or after due diligence. And, um, you know, there, like I said, there, there is no right answer, but I think, you know, your recommendation is uh, definitely smart in terms of minimizing the disruption and, you know, that and heartburn that a potential transaction can cause. Uh, Mark, maybe share some of your insights just in terms of management's importance in the due diligence process and in a transaction value and, you know, how critical they are uh, to a successful transaction. Yeah, I'd say for, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd say for a financial buyer, I think, I think showing um, the management team and the, the, the level of complexity with them and, and the fact that they um, understand every corner of the business is, is extremely important. So, you know, I, I always advise um, them to, to make themselves available as much as um, necessary at the beginning. And, and, you know, if they're still in the preliminary phases, uh, you know, it's very similar to Matt. I, I don't think that they need to involve employees because if this particular, if one particular opportunity falls through and they want to pick something up with someone else a couple months later, you don't want your employees to see that that you know that all this activity at the top. Uh, I think it, you're right; it creates a lot of anxiety. But um, I, I always advise, advise that the management team to 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 be the ones initially that are answering all the questions um, and building that trust. Get you know uh, participating and qualifying the buyer as far as. Um, you know what's their true intentions going to be post close um you know and 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 and, and so forth um and just to, to show that the command of the business operations uh, partic particularly if they're if they're going to be staying with the business yeah it's a great point and uh you know i appreciate that insight and management as you guys both mentioned is uh super critical in any of these deals so that was really the last topic i guess just in terms of wrapping up um any words of wisdom uh start with matt any words of wisdom for potential sellers or business owners that may be thinking about this decision and you know do you do you have anything that they should be thinking about or uh or advice to them as we wrap up here sure absolutely i would say really focus on culture if you have a the stronger your culture is the more important culture is going to matter and whoever you sell your company to um, we touched a little bit on due diligence, but I would let you know other areas that can come up and bite if you're not proactive on them could be if you've got kind of OSHA areas or lingering legal items. If you're part of a party of a lawsuit, either either on the offensive or on the defensive, um, do you have any lingering HR items where uh, it wouldn't pass muster the way that you are? Uh, employing certain people. An example of that would be if, if uh, do you e-verify all your workforce? If you've got a, a big, uh, you know, bl blue collar workforce, that would be one item that could be squirrely. Uh, do you have environmental issues? Do you have tax issues, uh, insurance issues? And then do you have deferred CapEx? If somebody came in and they looked at your business and it looked like you haven't put in a new piece of equipment in 15 years and it's on its last leg, it actually is going to cost you more 
than if you updated your CapEx and it looked pristine. So I would just say, make sure that you're, you know, focusing on the predictability and reliability of future cash flow uh, going forward. And so CapEx, uh, some of these other items are all, all drivers of that. Yeah, that's, that's some really good insight. And Mark, I'll, I'll wrap up with you. Same question. Any advice you have for business owners that are thinking about uh, pursuing a transaction or considering a sale process? Yeah, I'd say start as early as possible and uh, and have realistic expectations. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, of course, a, a company's value propositions in its, um, you know, revenue prospects and, and cash flow profile. But, you know, while you're driving those higher, there's there's certainly a lot of blocking and tackling you can do to, um, you know, at the same time, ensuring that you're maxi maximizing your value. So a lot, of, a lot of the lines of what Matt was talking about, you know, just, uh, just tightening up your accounting policies and procedures, making sure that systems are in place, making sure that your key personnel is in place, um, getting the financial house in order. Um, also, you know, making sure that certain operational items are up to snuff, like your, your sales and marketing process, um, and, uh, you know, making, making sure that a buyer will be comfortable that there's no need to hire or revamp production or, you know, so forth on day one post, uh, post close, because I think that that all, that all, you know, increases the likelihood of a deal ultimately being consummated as well as helps, uh, maximize the value in which the market's willing to bear at that point for the company. Uh, also great answers, Mark. Appreciate that. And they're all, you know, great points for people to, uh, to consider. So with that said, guys, thank you both very much for joining us. We really appreciated the conversation and, you know, hope that it's uh, valuable for any uh, business owners, uh, out there. So thank, thanks for taking the time. Our pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Right, thank you guys. That was a really good episode. Glad we could have uh, both Matt and Mark on board uh, for that conversation. As you know, as I started out the episode, it's definitely an interesting conversation and a topic that's really important uh, to a lot of business owners and maybe, you know, the biggest decision that they make in their professional career. Um, you know, so we just wanted to recap some of the things that you know, jumped out at us in that conversation. And, you know, the first thing that, that kind of hit me was how many times the concept of culture uh, came up in the conversation. Uh, I talked about it, Mark talked about it, and, and Matt brought it up a lot as he's uh, speaking with clients and really understanding what is the culture of the business? Uh, what is the culture of the buyer that you're hoping to find? And how important of a factor is that in identifying that buyer? And Matt hit the nail on the head for a lot of business owners. It's not just their success that's ultimately brought the business to that point in time, but it's the employees and the team that are around the business helping them get there. And it's really important for those business owners to be able to take care of those employees. And people want to be able to find a partner that they feel is going to be a good cultural fit that's going to take care of their team and really be involved in, you know, helping the company kind of continue their legacy. So that's one that I think with adequate thought and adequate preparation, really understanding what exactly you're looking for in advance of the sale process and help you to identify and know exactly what the culture of that buyer uh, needs to be in order for it to be successful. 
you know, we talked a little bit about the different types of buyers, be it strategic or financial. And even in, you know, financial buyers, there's private equity, there's independent sponsors, there's family offices and a mix of, of all of the, the above. And I think it's really critical for a lot of business owners to identify early on, you know, with help of their broker or banker that's advising them on the sale to really think through ideally what the perfect buyer is. If an owner really wants to be out and transition quickly, you might be closer to a strategic buyer. If an owner wants to, you know, have more of a longer term run, call it three to five years, you may be looking more for a financial buyer. It also depends on what you're looking for for your employees. So understanding that and identifying it up front is really important and it also impacts you know the sale process you know naturally people are going to be nervous about sharing competitive information with a strategic buyer and trying to decide when and how you do that in a traditional process is really important so that type of buyer you know is critical and again culture is a major factor in figuring out what the what the right buyer is yeah, Josh, I think that those two points around, you know, culture and the type of buyer really culminates in, in an interesting idea that Matt had originally brought up in that, you know, often the highest bid is not the winning bid. You know, it's it could be, you know, the second highest bid or the third highest bid. And what it really comes down to is, you know, the feel and the relationship and the culture fit with, you know, whoever is coming in with interest in this business. Oftentimes you and I talk about that a lot, which is a, an important you know, part for Lancer, really trying to work on those relationships, start you know, sort of nurturing that from day one, because you know, when it comes down to the end of the process, we might not be the highest bidder, but if we can you know, have that relationship and be able to help an owner feel good about getting into a partnership, it becomes very important. Um, and sort of you know, from another angle, from Mark's angle, um, I thought something really interesting that he brought up was sort of the idea of, you know, tracking and categorizing expenses uh, such as addbacks and adjustments, you know, just sort of stuff along those lines to make sure that the transition into the diligence process and throughout the entire, you know, that entire timeline is as smooth as possible. You know, it, it was really critical and interesting to hear him talk about that, you know really categorize anything from, you know, like I said, the addbacks and adjustments, the types of CapEx, you know, whether it's growth, maintenance, one time, whatever. And, you know, really segregating the owner personal expenses becomes a, a very important part of, you know, making sure that all your ducks are in a row going into that that exit. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it is really important. The, the biggest part of most transaction processes is really around the you know, what we like to call quality of earnings. And that can mean a lot of different things in terms of size and scope of the accounting and financial due diligence. But it's it's going to be a critical part of any process because ultimately we're buying a business with cash flow and the size and profitability of the business and that cash flow is is really important in us determining evaluation. So uh, being able to get comfort that the numbers that we believe and think we believe are confirmed by an independent third party is important. And the the tighter you can have the information and, and the better equipped you are to present backup and support information to the numbers you're presenting to a buyer will certainly ease and simplify a process. And, you know, along those lines, we talked a little bit about a sell side quality of earnings and the potential to use it 
you know, in a process for your own benefit. And, you know, Matt and Mark both had interesting commentary on that specific issue. And businesses that have been audited for many years, they have a really quality, reputable audit audit firm. Uh, it might not be as big of a need or a concern, uh, but certainly still something you can consider. Uh, but certainly businesses that maybe only have compiled or reviewed financials or tax returns, um, you know, the quality of earnings and accounting review is going to be a really critical part in that due diligence process. And if you do it up front before you take the business to market, you have a much higher degree of certainty uh, as to what numbers you're representing and how your numbers are going to pan out in uh, the scope of a, a third party due diligence project. So that allows a seller to potentially control that piece of the process understand what their numbers are up front and have a lot of certainty around when the time comes and a buyer is looking at these numbers, you know, I already know how their firm is going to look at it. And that, that also potentially protects against any, you know, diligence or valuation adjustments that may pop up. So uh, certainly something to consider and think about. And, and we would agree with Mark that we have seen this become a, a bigger trend in, in sale processes. So, you know, with that said, I think those are a couple key items we heard in the episode. Again, thought it was a great conversation. And, you know, I'd expect that, you know, going forward as we produce more episodes of the podcast that we'll have similar type conversations and get insight from other people because this is a really big factor and, you know, planning and exiting and understanding the trends and sale processes and those things are something that, you know, is important for business owners to know and understand on an ongoing basis. Uh, so with that said, if anybody wants to engage with us or, you know, reach out about best practices or uh, items, you know, from a practical standpoint that we would encourage as people are thinking about prepping their business for sale or want to get in touch with Mark or Matt on any questions or topics from the episode, please email us at podcast at lancercm.com. Again, it's podcast at lancercm.com. And we uh, look forward to the next episode. Thanks, everyone. 